Hey everyone, technically you're getting two days in history today because we're running two episodes from the History Vault. Hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that uncovers history one day at a time. The day was February 8th, 1887. U.S. President Grover Cleveland signed into law the Dawes General Allotment Act. Before the Dawes Act was passed, Native American tribes controlled their reservation lands. But with this new policy, lands that were held in common by tribe members would now be divided among individual Native Americans. The intent behind the Dawes Act was for Natives to be responsible for their own farms and become what the U.S. government considered upstanding members of American society. Because of the law, Native Americans would become U.S. citizens who were subject to U.S. laws, and the government would no longer have to tend to its tribal relations so carefully. Another major goal of the act was to transfer tribal lands to white Americans, the act called for any lands not allotted to natives to be put up for public sale, with the money made from the sale going toward tribal education. Many non-natives thought that the assimilation of Native Americans into white society would be a benefit for natives. If they abandoned their tribal ways of life, then natives would be civilized and saved from their own barbarity. But Native Americans didn't really reap many benefits from this process of assimilation. The Dawes Act is named after its chief author, Senator Henry Dawes from Massachusetts. Dawes believed that when people owned property, it could help civilize them and convince them to accept the laws of the government. So the senator sponsored the Dawes Act. The act said that heads of household would get 160 acres, or 65 hectares. Single adults and orphans would get 80 acres, and children would get 40 acres. At first, married women weren't given any land, though the law was later changed to assign equal allotments to all people. Tribe members were given four years to select the land they wanted And if they didn't do so within the specified time, the government would make the selection for them. The Dawes Act also said that the U.S. would hold the allotted land in trust for 25 years, and only then would the full title to the land and U.S. citizenship be granted to the Native American. The idea was that during this 25 years, the tribe member in charge of the allotment would get accustomed to owning and farming the land and stray further from their traditional communal way of life. And Section 8 of the Act specified territories and tribes that would not be affected by the law, which included tribes in Indian Territory, which is generally the area of the central United States, the Oklahoma Territory, reservations of the Seneca Nation of New York, and a strip of territory in Nebraska. But the U.S. created the Dawes Commission in 1893 to convince the so-called Five Civilized Tribes, or the Cherokees, Creeks, Choctaws, Chickasaws, and Seminoles, to give up their land and partition it into individual allotments. 
And in 1898, the U.S. passed the Curtis Act, which allotted land to tribal members in exchange for abolishing their tribal governments. The act required natives to claim membership in one tribe and register on the Dawes Rolls to receive their land allotment. Today, many people insist that proponents of the Dawes Act truly thought the law would be good for the welfare of Native American people. Critics say the act was mainly a greedy land grab. Either way, the Dawes Act did more harm to Native Americans than it did good. The Dawes Act and later extensions of the act broke up communities and separated Natives from many of their cultural practices. Many tribe members were not interested in agriculture and living a sedentary life and weren't equipped with the knowledge, money, or supplies to do so. Much of the land Native Americans had been allotted was arid and semi-arid desert that was not suitable for farming. Sometimes children inherited land that they couldn't farm because they were away at boarding school. Many of the allotments lost value because of bad lease arrangements and tax foreclosures. And the 1906 Burke Act gave the Secretary of the Interior the authority to deem Native Americans competent or incompetent of handling affairs for their allotment. So the government had the power to sell allotted lands. As a result, many Natives had their land taken or sold their land to white buyers. The Dawes Act remained effective until 1934, when the U.S. Indian Reorganization Act, or the Wheeler-Howard Act, ended the land allotment policy and allowed tribes to organize their self-governments again. But by then, Native American tribes had already lost a ton of their land and natural resources. They went from owning 155 million acres in 1881 to 48 million acres in 1934. And even though the allotment process ended nearly a century ago, Native Americans in the U.S. today still feel its effects. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little bit more about history today than you did yesterday. You can subscribe to This Day in History class on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you here in the same place tomorrow. Hey y'all, I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a podcast for people interested in the big and small moments in history. The day was February 8th, 1909. Belgian chemist Leo Bakeland announced his invention of Bakelite to the public. Bakelite was the first truly synthetic resin. Bakelin was born in Ghent, Belgium, in 1863. He got his Bachelor of Science at the University of Ghent, and a couple of years later, he received his Doctorate of Science. Bakelin invented Velox's photographic paper, and by the late 19th century, he was wealthy. He sold his Velox paper rights to Eastman Kodak for a million dollars, and at that point, he moved into his Snug Rock estate in Yonkers, New York. 
There, he had a home laboratory where he worked with his assistant, Nathaniel Thurlow. In the lab, Bakelin began experimenting with combinations of phenol and formaldehyde. Years earlier, scientists experimenting with the substances reported that the combination formed a hard material. Other chemists had been working with phenol and formaldehyde to create a material that could compete commercially with celluloid, but they were unsuccessful. Bakelin and Thurlow began working on creating a synthetic shellac, since natural shellac was in short supply. Shellac was used to insulate electrical cables, but since it was made from a resin secreted by a bug, there wasn't enough of it to meet demand. They did create a phenol formaldehyde shellac called Novolac, but it flopped. They switched gears to creating a synthetic resin that could be infused in wood to strengthen it. Bakelin started writing in a new laboratory notebook in June of 1907, documenting the test using the mixture on wood. In his June 19th entry, he wrote the following in part. All these tests were conducted in concentrated horizontal digester, and the apparatus was reasonably tight. Yet the surface of the blocks of wood does not feel hard, although a small part of gum that has oozed out is very hard. At first, he called the substance substance D, but soon he began referring to it as Bakelite with two A's. In a lecture he gave to the New York section of the American Chemical Society on February 8, 1909, Bakelin announced his invention. In it, he said, by the use of small amounts of bases, I have succeeded in preparing a solid initial condensation product, the properties of which simplify enormously all molding operations. Bakelin took out more than 400 patents related to Bakelite. He started a production in his laboratory using a machine called a bakelizer that subjected early stages of the product to heat and pressure. But when demands got higher, he formed a company to manufacture and market his product. Bakelite was easily molded and less expensive to make than celluloid. It also kept its shape once it was molded. At first, Bakelite was used in the automotive and electrical industries, in products like radios and light bulb sockets. But soon, it proved useful for accessories, jewelry, and household items. Though Bakelite was eventually outclassed by other materials, the invention of Bakelite kickstarted a wave that made synthetic plastics ubiquitous in households and businesses everywhere. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If there's something I missed in the show today, you can let us know at T-D-I-H-C podcast on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And if you would like to write me a letter, you can scan it, turn it into a PDF, and send it to us via email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.